Well, I'm going to begin with a comic strip, and Ben said you can read some of it. Uh, you may not read all the words, but just listen to this. Look, says this mother, looking at her scrapbook with her daughter. This picture is from the day I found out I was pregnant. With me? Oh, no, no. With a clump of cells that had hijacked my body. How did it turn into me, says the little girl? Well, we'll get there, sweetie. Oh, this one's from the day I decided I was pretty sure I was not going to get an abortion. Based solely on my subjective choice, my little blob of tissue got legal rights. Unless, of course, I changed my mind on any given day. Oh, says the little girl. Oh, look, pics from my fetus shower. So much fun. Was all that stuff for me? Eventually it would be. But I was still utterly sovereign over whether or not my little clump was a person with the right to life, so I kept all the receipts just in case. Ha ha. Duh, says the little girl, like she's been educated in this. Oh, look here. Here you are. This is you laying on my chest right after you were born. This is when you became you, my darling. It's hard to believe, but just a moment before this picture was taken, you weren't even a person. Then all of a sudden, there you were, a beautiful baby girl, to which she says, amazing. So what changes, she asked a good question, what changes a clump of cells into a baby, Mom? What was it that changed that fetus into me? Oh, just a few minutes, a few inches. And my absurd pro-choice logic, sweetheart, wow, it's like magic. You laugh because you see the insanity, and I'll say it again, the insanity, insane, of that other position. My question to you, I'm, I'm 42. I know some people are turning older than me here later this month. I know some people are still younger than me. Where were you January 22nd, 1973? Remember that? I called my mother because it just hit me. My mother was five months pregnant with me. And I called her the other day. I said, hey, did you realize what was going on on January 22nd, 1973? And she said she did. And I said, do you understand what was all that? She goes, yes, but here's her simple statement. That is something you do not do. My brilliant theologian of a mother. That is something you do not knew. That's back in the day when we actually held to the Ten Commandments as real. Eleven years later, in 1984, about the age of my daughter, there was a president who, who valued life and did something about it. He didn't just talk about it. He actually enacted a law based on that date. Uh, since Roe v. Wade on that date, and our Supreme Court playing God said that you had rights to abortion and brought all this unnecessary death into the world. Since that time, January 22nd has been called National Sanctity of Human Life Day. And so we as a church, not just us at Eagle Bible, but churches across the land, if you see the next picture, have dubbed the third Sunday in January as Sanctity of Life Sunday. Isn't that a cheap little pumpkin? And that is what today is. Today is Sanctity of Life Sunday. It's interesting. We had a friend over last night, and they have a little baby and when we came back in, the little baby was a little uh, little upset because she wasn't near her mother. But then she heard her mother's voice, and she turned. And I was just saying then, and every time I get a chance, I don't care if I'm with believers, unbelievers, I'm like, 
That is amazing that that baby knew that mother. That is how God's designed it. And so we have Sanctity of Life Sunday that we take the time to talk about something that we really shouldn't have to talk about. We take Sanctity of Life Sunday for three reasons. To celebrate God's gift of life, to commemorate the lives lost to abortion. If you want to go out and see at numbersofabortions.com, I wasn't on there one minute. I wasn't on there one minute. And there were 30 clicks. And it's almost 60 million lives, that's what we're calling it, babies, humans lost to abortion. And so not only do we celebrate God's gift of life and we commemorate those lives that have been lost, we commit to protect it, and thus this is a day when we can talk about something very, very important and far bigger, honestly, than abortion. And so today I want to celebrate God's gift of life because uh, in Him we move and live and have our being. Man, we need to realize that He is the God over all of life, from the womb to the deathbed. And so we're going to look at what the Bible has to say compared to what culture has to say, and then we're going to see that that rotten fruit of abortion runs far deeper and, and may hit home much closer than some of us expect. And so we're going to look at Exodus 20, verse 13. We're going to go out of order today, and here's the preview. We're going to see what God has to say about it. We're going to see what man does with what God has to say. We're going to see what Jesus both said and did about it. And then we're going to see how we live on mission. How do we go out and speak and do the right thing? And so the first things first, as you turn to Exodus 20, verse 13, you have to begin, like we had Don read, that it says, I am the Lord and there is no other. The I am's, and if you'll get this, and if I get this, and if we'll really live like this, we will, life will be so much more pleasant for us. The I am precedes the you shall. See, we live in a world that all, all they see is the you shall. They don't see the I am. I am the Lord who says these things. I brought you out of Egypt. I am the gracious God, the plural, perfect, powerful God. That I am precedes the you shall. And this is huge. If we're, we're walking through the book of Ephesians, Paul gives three full chapters to the I am. This is what God has done long before he says you shall. This is what you shall do. God's character, who God is, is implicit in all the commands. Then our conduct flows from that. If we get that, with the Ten Commandments, and we get that in all of how we read the Bible, the I am precedes the, the, the you shall. That will change the way we approach the Christian life. God, you have said I should do this, but you're a God of grace. Enable me to do what you've called me to do. So we begin with the blessed quote by some authorized version. Thou shall not kill. Now, I'm going to tell you that that verse is wrong. You've just been making this big thing about what we should and shouldn't do. You're telling me that verse is wrong. Do you not agree with the Bible? Oh, I agree with the Bible. I just disagree with that translation of the Bible. Let me show you. There are about 13 other translations. The RSV, the New RSV, the New American Standard, the Living Bible, the NIV, both 84 and 2011. The New King James, the Net the blessed ESV, the NLT, 
and what we've effectually called the Johnny College Bible, the Holman Christian Standard Bible, all of them say, and I agree with them, you shall not murder. You see the change. There is a difference. You shall not, thou shalt not kill and you shall not murder are different because they're two different words in the Hebrew. Two different words. And here's the Hebrew. There's just two words. The first word is that strong negation. And after that, rasa, here is the word. It is not to kill. It means to murder, to murder. And I think the uh, amplified version, if we were to show that to you, which gives you the, the English version, the message actually gets it the best. It literally says no murder. The message says no murder, and that's the closest to the Hebrew. But here's the Amplified Bible, because I think it shows you the difference. You shall not murder. Well, what then is murder? Unjustified, deliberate homicide. Unjustified, deliberate homicide. The you there is the setting, right? Uh, it's given after Exodus 19, before the, where the people respond in kind. We, don't, we want you to go and intercede, Moses. So it's given to the nation, but it's a singular, because it applies to every single person there, and it applies to all of us, you shall not, that's that strong negation, the low in the Hebrew, murder, that is to take life deliberately or unjustified. There is a difference between murder and killing. In fact, 1 Samuel 2, 6 says, the Lord kills and the Lord gives life. And so even from those other texts, and you will see today, there is a time and place where it might be okay, according to scripture, to kill. It is never okay to murder. Make sense? So the blessed authorized version missed it. So was this, this command given out of the blue? I mean, you just told me now is it, it's okay to kill someone. So you, you really need to explain that. No problemo. We'll begin with God and we'll look at what his word has to say. This wasn't given out of context. This commandment, no murder, or you shall not murder, was given to encapsulate something that had happened before and would be prevalent after. And so we begin looking at the God who values Life In Genesis 1, verse 26, then God said, Let us make man in our image. And this can't be God and the angels because we're not made in the image of angels. This must be a precursor to that plural God we were talking about last week. Let us make man in our image after our own likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Because we're made in the image of God, every single human, you shouldn't, you and I should never look at a human differently again. Every human, every single human made in the image of God, number one, we have dignity. We have dignity. You're made in the image of God. We have dignity. There is something valuable about every single human life. We have dignity. C.S. Lewis said, if you saw the, the bum in the, in the alleyway, and if you really saw the dignity behind them, you would be blown away. Every single human is created in the image of God, and thus we have dignity. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. They are not, not only do we have dignity, but we are different. We are different. We have personality. There is maleness and there is femaleness because that is what God wanted. It wasn't supposed to be male and male or female and female or male and female and then I want to become what I'm not, Caitlin. That is not how God designed it. 
And so not only do we have dignity, we have personality. We are different by design. In verse 28, and God blessed them, male and female. God blessed them, plural. He had created male and female, and God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So they were supposed to multiply and they were supposed to follow God and inherent in being a human is you have dignity made in the image of God. There's maleness and femaleness and there is morality that we are to take care of one another. But what happens when sin enters into the world in chapter 3 and we're introduced to another figure, a true person being that walks the earth. His name is Satan. And John 8, 44 says, you are talk, Jesus talking to the people of his day, you are of your father, the devil. What about this devil? And you do, your will is to do your father's desires. He explains who the devil is. He was a murderer, not a killer. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. And so you get this spectacular creation in Genesis 1. You get this special creation in Genesis 2. And then you get a liar and a murderer in Genesis 3. He lied about death so that they would die. He's a murderer. And then you see the effects of that in Genesis 4. You have the first murder, Cain and Abel. And God sees their sin, that Abel's blood was crying out to God. And so in Genesis 6, and you see it five times in Genesis 6, 1 through 3, you see this term, and the world was corrupt and violent, corrupt and violent. And God was grieved because the world was corrupt and violent. Let's just show a hand. Could, could corrupt and violent be a good way to describe the local news? Anyone? So you're saying, Judd, what you're saying to me, what I see where you're going is you're trying to say that the world from the beginning has been corrupt and violent. There's nothing new under the sun. You could walk through all of that. And you're saying not much has changed. And I would say, yes, I agree with you, friends who are here today. Well, what does God do with that then? Knowing that the world is corrupt and violent, knowing that, that uh, Cain said, oh, no, they're going to kill me. He said, nobody will kill you. So what does God do? Prior to the law, prior to the law, Genesis 9, 5 through 7. This is a pre-law law of life and justice for taking life. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it from every man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds blood of man, by his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. He gave you a reason. Man has dignity. Man is made after my image. Therefore, you do not get to take his life. And if a man takes his life, it will forfeit his life. And you shall be fruitful and multiply and increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. He's re-showing you the creation mandate and that God values life. And it's not in our hands to take it unjustified or deliberate apart from God's word. And then you get the law that we just read a few minutes ago, no murder. And then later on in the next chapter in Exodus, you get this. 21, 12 through 17. Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. But if he did not lie and wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I'll appoint a place for you to which he may flee. God made provision for manslaughter. 
But if a man willingly attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. Now watch this. This is God. Whoever strikes his father and mother shall be put to death. Whoever steals and sells him, steals a man and sells him, that's called kidnapping, and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Woe, whoever curses his father or mother shall be put to death. Capital punishment was an acceptable means of law enforcement in the Old Testament. There were no pacifists in the Old Testament. And I'm pretty sure that our Savior was not a pacifist either. What do you mean? No problem. Luke 22:35. When he said to them, When I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said, Nothing. He said to them, But now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack. And then let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered among the transgressors, for it is written about me has it to fulfillment. And they said, Look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, It is enough. Now, there are two ways to take this, and I'm not going to settle the debate today, but I'm going to show you here are the two ways to take this, and I'm going to give you my thoughts. Many interpreters take this to be a metaphorical statement commanding the disciples to be armed spiritually to fight spiritual foes. In favor of this view, the disciples misunderstood Jesus' command and produced two literal swords. Jesus' response is, it is enough, as like it's a rebuke. That's enough. Don't do that. Have you ever done that to your kids? That's enough. Enough of this talk about swords is what they say. Just a few minutes later, Jesus would again prohibit the use of a literal sword. That's one interpretation. I do not take that interpretation because I interpret the Bible literally. This is my interpretation. Others take this as a command to have a literal sword. Notice what for self-defense and protection from robbers. In support of this view, the money bag and knapsack and cloak in this same verse are literal. And so the sword must be taken literally as well. Good principle. Good principle. Jesus' response that is enough actually approves the swords the disciples have been in, have as being enough. And Jesus' later rebuke only prohibits them from blocking his arrest and suffering, that is, from seeking to advance the kingdom by force. So when he talks to Peter later, put your sword away, you are thinking as man thinks. He wasn't talking about don't carry your sword. He just said take a sword. What he's talking about is the gospel kingdom will not advance through force. However, you can defend and protect yourself. The very fact that the disciples possess swords suggests that Jesus has not prohibited them from carrying swords up to this point, and Jesus never prohibited self-defense. And so in their days, it was a sword, and it was a sword for protection, and a sword for self-defense. In our days, it's called a gun. And I love this. I neither own a gun, though I should, nor am I part of the NRA. But I will say this, guns don't kill people. People kill people. So God made provisions pre-law. God made a law about it. And post-law, we see we had certain validated reasons. And you see that, you're saying, well, that's so Old Testament. You're such an Old Testament guy. Well, okay, Romans 13, beginning in verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Catch this, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. God's overall government. Therefore, 
Whoever resists authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. So not only is the sword for protection, but the sword is for punishment. Where do you get that, Judd? Verse 3, for the rulers are not a terror. Terror, that's a pretty hard word. To good judge, good conduct, but to bad. So the, so the rulers are to be a terror to bad conduct, a terror. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. And here's the key. For he does not bear the sword in vain. That is not a hypothetical, that's not metaphorical, that literally says it, and that literally means it. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. And so, what these verses show from the scriptures is that defending yourself and others is okay. And this happens on multiple levels. I'm not going to solve the pacifist argument today, but let me just throw out some things for you to consider on an individual level. Judd Rumley protecting his family. The only guns I have in my house right now are Nerf guns. I don't think those would do the deal should somebody break in. I sit there with the big old Nerf bazooka. It's got a big one, and it said, don't move because this could hurt or hit you. I saw it. It hit my son in the back and kind of left a welt, so be careful. But if somebody does come into my house, though I don't have a gun and I probably should get one, I have a metal bar, and I, I'm pretty good with when bullets are shot to, like, stop it. Just kidding. I'll do whatever to save my family's life. But you know, on an individual level, you're not going to sit there and tell me if somebody comes into your house, you're going to play that, oh, let's talk. Uh, you're going to defend your family, just like I will defend my family. Now you may say, well, I don't know about that. Well, how about communally? Policemen protecting our society. I just want to ask the pacifist, what do you do with the guns that policemen carry? We have one here today. Hey, go do your job, but just do it, you know, do it with some, you know, three balls and juggle right there and, and impress them with your juggling skills. No, you need a gun on the hip so you can help do your job. And nationally, militaries protecting a country. Now, let me give you some caveats, qualifications, mind you, that help us. Number one, it should be, and, and think about this, and then think about how it's gone on in our country at a national level. All these things are played out. Just cause, is there a reason for this? Just intent, how are we going to go about this? As a last resort, have we tried negotiations? Formal declaration, every time we go to war, there's a formal declaration. When politicians get in trouble is when they do wars on the side without declaring it, and we've seen that happen. There's a limited objective. It's not just war for war's sake. It's to take out the enemy in a certain area for a certain time. It's proportion in its means. That sounds very much like an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Proportionate in its means. That's what Exodus 21, to limit the retribution. And there's non-combatant immunity. We're not just going to obliterate just to obliterate, but we're going to try to do it with wisdom and stri strategic efforts to not hurt those who aren't involved. If you've seen American Sniper, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And he's sitting there, and he's waiting. 
because he is protecting his country. Now, there's a lot of stuff going on in the movie, but just go with me for this one, okay? I'm not going to, not defending all of it, but he's sitting there and he said, please don't pick it up, please don't pick it up, please don't pick it up. Please don't pick it up, don't pick it up. And the kid picks it up and he's put it down, put it down, put it down because he believes this. There was just cause, just intent. It's a last resort. It's been formally declared. It's limited in its objective and it's proportionate in its means. And he doesn't want to take innocent life. Please put it down, put it down. And he does, he runs off. Doesn't happen throughout the whole movie. But the point is, it's a great illustration of when we go to protect even our militaries in form, we're going to do it with dignity and respect. This is a subject of much debate, but I think Luke and Romans gives us a clear confirmation that we do have the right to bear arms. And I want to move on to something a little more heartwarming. And so we see from creation, God values law from the law that God puts a limit on what we can do. And now from the Psalms, you're going to see our purpose in the process in creating mankind. Psalm 8, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, who has displayed your splendor above the heavens. For the, from the mouths of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. When I consider the heavens, the work of your fingers, the sun and the moon that you have ordained, what is man that you have set him in his place? What is man that you've thought of him or the son of man that you care for him? So here the begin, it begins with, God, you are absolutely to be glorified. And in light of your glory and creation, notice creation is separate from man. When I look at the heavens, I, I see man and we're separate. We're not one with the earth. We're separate. Why did you make us? Yet you've made him a little lower than God. You've crowned him with glory and majesty. That's, that's that image of God. That's that dominion over creation. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You put under all things under his feet. All the ox, sheep and oxen, all the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes through along the paths of the sea. O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Mankind is special. God is absolutely sovereign. Mankind is special. That's the way God's designed it. And what separates us from creation is we are called to rule over creation and rule and govern one another. And we are called to do this with morality. And that is why we have laws. People say you cannot legislate morality. I'll say you just you've lived with it for however long you've been living. We do legislate morality. So that's a silly argument. Because mankind as God is sovereign, mankind is special. And watch what he does in 139. For you formed my inward parts. <clears throat> you knitted me together. I love this. I love what this says here. You see that last phrase on there. You knitted me together and I became a bean when I came out of my mother's womb. Oh, it doesn't say that. Ken Sharp, he's like, it doesn't say that. No, it doesn't say that. You're right. You knitted me, a person, together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. When did he do it? In the mother's womb. <clears throat> Before you were born. When? Before you were born. Where? In the mother's womb. How? Fearfully and wonderfully. Even those people that we've seen, I remember I've told you about her before. Back in Texas, there was a girl named Cheryl Madewell. And her body just started breaking down, and the Lord knew it. 
he knew everything. He knew what family she was going into with a last name Madewell. And so we always used to encourage her, Cheryl, though her body started to break down and she needed to be in a wheelchair and she had to have friends help her. She was made so well. She was fearfully and wonderfully made. Every single human being. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. He's just saying where you couldn't see, your eyes saw my unformed substance. You, in your book were written, every one of them, what? The days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. God knows your days. God is the one who's over your days. And apart from his sanctified word, no one can take away your days, not even you. And so that's what God has to say. He created man. He gave laws for how mankind should deal with one another. And he, the Psalms show us how wonderful that is. Well, how have we done with God's guidance? There's a lot that's going through your head, I know. And so I've tried to put two categories out there. Are how mankind has responded to God's word with his actions and how mankind has responded to God's word with his attitude. And so the action will begin with murder. To take someone's life without just cause or according to your choice, apart from the sanctified word of God, here's what happens. I'll just give you a list of them. You get feticide, otherwise known as abortion. God, not humans, determines when life begins. Thank you. I wasn't waiting for an amen, but that's, that's good. God, not humans, decides when life begins. We are absolutely, because of dignity, personality, and morality, we are, as He is sovereign, we are special. We are special. I'm sitting the other day at Yeti's, minding my own business, working on this sermon, and I just had to pause and just, yes, I eavesdropped. There was a, two people sitting next to me talking about someone with such affection, such compassion, such love, and it was a dog. And it frustrated me. It was a dog. And so-and-so used to not like dogs, and they didn't see them as people, but now and this is, came out of their mouths. They didn't see him as people, but now they do, and he doesn't mind dog hair in his coffee. And I didn't say, I, I, I so wanted to say something. I should have. If I, you know, we can't go back in time, but if I could, just I should have just taken this right here. Excuse me, working on a sermon on humanity. That's you. And I'm so not compassionate because I, quote, don't like dogs. I love dogs. I love them. I wish we had a lawn that had a fence and a landowner that said, have a dog. I would get a dog. But it would not be named after a person. It would, give, it would have dog food, and it would be outside. And I would love it and bring it inside sometime. I get it. Maybe give it even a chew toy. 
but it's not a human. And what has happened is we have now devalued humans and we've increased dogs to the level of people. And the fact that I say that and some people would say, I can't believe you just said that, shows how far we've gotten away from no murder. God values human life. Does God value animals? Yes, it's in the gospel. Take care of it. Have mercy on animals. But let's not talk about our animals as if they're people. So we don't get to kill babies in the womb. I'm sorry, but Dr. Kevorkian is wrong. He does not get to determine when life ends. In your book were written every one of them. What are those thems? The days that were formed for me. So just as he formed us in our mother's womb, he formed our days as yet that when there were none of them. He doesn't get to choose when we end life. Homicide is wrong. God determines when it's proper for a life to be taken. We've talked about that. Genocide is wrong. God, not us, determines when a mass of people will die. And suicide, my friends, is wrong. God determines your days, not you. In fact, he says in Ezekiel 4.8, all souls are mine. In 1 Corinthians 6.20, you've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. But I'm not hurting anybody else. I'm just taking my own life. As if you, who died and made you God of your own life? Nobody. And no, you're not just hurting yourself. You're going to destroy the lives of those people immediately around you. Feticide, euthanasia, homicide, genocide, suicide, they're all wrong. And you're saying to yourself, amen, but I've never done any of those things. Well, let's just get to the heart of the matter. Genesis 6, 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intentions of the thoughts of his heart, the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. After, that's before the flood. After the flood. When the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, like bacon, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. Why? For the intention of his man's heart is evil from his youth. Never again will I strike down every living creature as I have done. I read this week in preparing for this, before there have been more murders from 1990 on than all the murders up to 1990 in all of history. That should blow us away. The heart behind this loss of human life, my friends, is anger. Anger. And so we all need to listen close, especially your pastor. I quote Skip Ryan. I'm going to quote three Presbyterians. I know, Bradley, you love that. So here we go. This is from his sermon, If Looks Could Kill, on this very same verse. My friends, if you let it, these verses, which are the verses to come, will cause you to bleed. They will. Although, the way I say it, your toes will probably be stepped on. Gently, but they're going to be stepped on. My advice to you is to lie still on the surgical table of this sermon and let the scalpel of God's Word do a work in your heart. Because if you move around on the table, you're just 
you will just get gouged by the scalpel and it will hurt. It will be much worse. So lie still and let God do his work. Okay? This is for you. This is for me. Matthew 5, 21 through 26 in the New American Standard. You have heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. Hold on right there. Notice what Jesus is doing. He's, anytime he wanted to quote scripture direct, he would say it is written that this is what they had heard. What they had heard <coughs> is the verse, you shall not murder, but then qualified and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. Jesus saying, not that the verse is wrong, but what you've heard, taking that text and then putting your own little law on it to protect it, like God's law needs protecting. <coughs> the Jews had made, said it wrong. Jesus then says in 22, But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. Whoever says to his brother, You good for nothing, it's raka in the Greek, it means you nobody, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. You may not, and I may not, have ever said you good for nothing, but we may have thought it. The thoughts and the intentions of his heart is only an evil continually. And whoever says you fool, Greek words moros is where we get our word moron. <coughs> if you've said that, you're guilty enough to go to hell, fiery hell. So I'm going to pass over verses 23 through 26 then. Anger is murder of the heart, and there may be no physical fulfillment, but the issues are the exact same. Let me give you another quote from Mr. Skip Ryan. What is the difference between an axe murderer and you and me? Beloved, nothing. Decree, degree, not kind. It's just a matter of the ripening of scorn and anger that produces the axe murderer. There's no difference in the heart. Do you believe that? Because if you've ever said you fool, you moron, if you've ever thought it, you're a murderer. I had a guy at Denton Bible Church he used to come up to me and I knew what he was doing. You murdered anybody today? He's like, that's good. No, I have not physically taken the life of somebody without, you know, just cause, etc. But when you and I have anger in our hearts before God Almighty, we are no different. No different. And so because we are no different, we've done a lot to kind of justify our anger. We won't even call it anger anymore. It's, I'm irked. I'm frustrated. Really got a little burr in my saddle. <clears throat> David Pallison says this, in understanding anger, every human, every human deals with anger. There's, there, are few, there are some who are less angry. There are some who are more angry. But every human has to deal with anger. <clears throat> we often experience but seldom understand it. I love what Pallison says here. Anger is something you do. You're not a victim of your anger. Don't ever say again, this, this makes me angry. No, you choose to be angry at that, because of that situation. Or not even because of it. That situation happened. Your choice is anger. It's something you do. 
Then he gives it a nice theological slant. Anger is natural. We're created in the image of God, and God is angry. We're going to see that from the Scripture. And anger is learned. We learn it from others, the right ways and the wrong ways to get angry and express anger. Some of you, um, we're, we're going to put you into two categories, put all of us into two categories. There's some of us who are Italian in our anger. We're just loud, and it comes out, and it just, it's there. And then there are some of you, kind of like magic in your anger, you, 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 you never show it. You're like the, the churning of a pond where you look at the top and you're like, wow, what, that's, that's, there's nothing really going on in that pond. And underneath, you're just as angry. One person is more expressive. And when I say Italian, if you're Italian, don't take offense to that. You know socially what I mean. Italian people, I'm, I'll put myself in that. We're just a little bit more. I'm from Oklahoma, but I'm an Italian, angry Oklahoman. Uh, we're just, we're louder, and people see it. My face gets red. You've seen it. Some of you in here know me. Some, and I'll just share with you a story. Some of you have seen it. There are two people sitting in here who have seen me, and they could easily label it rage. In my car with them on the way home five years ago from a particular meeting, and I was absolutely enraged. And it was ugly. And I think and since that since that day, one of them is, we've had to come a long way in our relationship. It is natural and is learned. That's how I learned it. That's how my dad was. Am I blaming it on my daddy? No, but that's, he was just a loud man who, when he expressed his anger, it was loud. And I had to, I learned that. And it's natural and it's a moral matter. So you and I have to learn how to handle our anger because it is not neutral. It is not neutral. It is never, ever neutral. Ever. From your small irking to a big rage, it's never neutral. Tim Keller gives us three uh, dangers of anger. Number one, physically, it will destroy your body. Trust me. If you have pent up anger and you don't deal with it, it will destroy your body. I believe my dad didn't just have a heart attack because of what he ate. I believe he was under a lot of stress, and I believe he never handled his anger, his anger well. Socially, it will destroy community. We've seen it happen. And intellectually, it will distort your decisions, the ability to make wise decisions, the ability to make any decisions. I, this was, it's still an issue, so don't hear, uh, like, I've, passed on from that into bigger and better things. At a point in my Christian walk, it was such an issue that I went and printed off every article and I looked at every verse and I said, Lord, by your grace and for your glory, just like we learned a couple weeks ago in 2 Thessalonians, would you fulfill this resolve for good to be a less angry man? C.J. Mahaney said one time, I am a proud man seeking humility by God's grace. I could easily say Judd Romney is an angry man seeking peace and joy by God's grace. And in reading that, I came up with a statement, agitated hearts make exaggerated statements because I was one of them. And I see it happen all the time. If people are frustrated, they say silly things. Agitated hearts make exaggerated statements. It distorts your decisions. You can't think, and thus it ruins you personally and ruins the world socially. 
and anger. We've bought into three lies, and this is where Pallison, the best counselor on the planet, in my opinion, helps us. These are three lies. Number one, anger is something inside of me. No, it's not. It is a response that you choose to certain situations. And then here's the other one. Well, it's okay to be angry with God sometimes. No, it's not. It's not really even okay to get frustrated with the weather because who's in control of the weather? Okay, and I... There are days when I know that I've got to get up at a certain crazy hour in the morning and snow's coming and I've just learned to go, Lord, you'll help me. You'll help me shovel quickly. Because I, I was turning, I was like, why? Why does it have to snow? Like, because God wanted it to. And if I'm frustrated, I'm frustrated with God. And that is not okay. It is never, ever okay in any situation ever to be angry with God. Because he is perfect, and he's working the world, out, the world out as he has planned, so it's never okay to be with him, ever. He's in control, you're not. You sit there and you go, okay, Lord, I didn't ask for that. You want me to learn something from this? My pastor has taught me, I hope I have taught you, how to use the Psalms to ask questions of God without ever questioning God. We live in such a psychologized world that says anger is something inside of you. You just got to learn to control it. And it's okay to be angry with God. Just let him have it. He's a big boy. He can take it. No, that's just, that's gross. There's nowhere. Show me in the scriptures where it said, I'm a big boy. My name is God. Be angry with me and I'll be okay. It's not good. Can God overlook David's anger? Yes. Is it okay? No. Because God's in control. You're not. And there's, here's the classic. My biggest problem is anger at myself, or my biggest problem is I can't forgive myself. You're right. You can't forgive yourself, and you shouldn't be angry at yourself. And if you're angry at yourself, that's sinful anger. <laughs> you, can, you can be disappointed that you made a bad decision. You can be, we could throw in more accurate terms, but it's not, your biggest problem is not anger at yourself. Those are the three lies. And so, in understanding anger, um, Tim Keller helps us. What is the next slide there, Jim? Here's its basic goodness. We can't just blow off and don't ever get angry again. That's, you can't do that. It's not no anger because, because God is a God who's full of anger. It's not blow anger. You can't just blow up in anger. It, it's, it's slow anger. Out there on the table is something by Justin Taylor, which he went and got about 12 different verses. All of them say the same thing. Be slow like God. <clears throat> he said, be slow like God. It, it's a sin. Let me, I'll just say it like this because it's in the scriptures. It is a sin to go through your life and never be angry. Ephesians 4, 26. That's a command, my friend. Be angry and do not sin. So it is a sin to never go through life and be biblically angry. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give, and give no opportunity to the devil. What he's saying there is there is a point in time to be angry. And it should be short-lived. You shouldn't let the sun go down on it. And you, it should be holy. It should be a righteous anger 
and you shouldn't give opportunity for the devil because he's one who's gotten people angry from the beginning. Where, it says, where does it say God is slow to anger? Exodus 34, 5 and 6. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh and Elohim, merciful and gracious, slow to anger. I took that sheet and I taped it on the inside of my Bible because that was was and can be, if I'm not careful, a big issue. So I wanted those immediately where I could look and see. God, it's natural. I'm made in the image of God. And I need to learn from him how to handle my anger. He's slow to anger. He's not quick to anger. He's slow to anger. And so Tim Keller says, here's what you ought to do with your anger. You ought to analyze it. You ought to you ought to admit it, because you're never going to change unless you come right out and say, you know what, this is one I've got to work on. Then you analyze it. Why do I get so angry? What hurts me? Why do these things quote and let's get all our softer words, frustrate me, irk me. Then we can get really creative with it. I've got a deep concern. You're deeply angry. And then transform it. And you say, but how do I transform it? Well, like we always say, you go to the one who handled it perfectly. His name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. And I want to begin with Jesus, who is the Son of God. Look at what it says in Psalm 7. I think it's Psalm 711. God is, right, is a righteous judge. Amen? Nobody disagrees with that. And, God, and a God who feels indignation every day. Every day. But isn't he the God of joy? Yes. And in his holiness, I don't know exactly how he does it, but one day I'm going to see him face to face and I'll go, I get it. In his holiness, he holds his joy and his compassion and his mercy with his anger. Rightfully. All the time. Every day. You're asking the question, why is he full of indignation every day? Because there's a lot of sin that goes on. Every day. So Jesus, who is the Son of God, in Mark 3, 5, it says, right there in the gospel, and he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. His anger led him to grieve. And that's where we, we go back to those two questions, Ben. Here, here are two questions that will help you for the rest of your life. From David Palafin. Do you get angry at the right thing? Do you? Do I? Um, the fact that Breaker went out this morning is not a reason to get angry. And you can walk in and be cool as a cucumber and be raging on the inside. So your pastor has to confess to you today, I came to church today angry. And I thought about it, and I was like, God, you're just humbling me right here. I'm teaching on anger. They thought it was all about murder, but they're seeing the root of it didn't show. Some, some people, so, so, somebody saw it like, you all right? Oh, yeah, I'm good. Arr. Why? Why would I get angry? Because I don't want to lose this precious space and things like that happen. And I just, and I go down this road, oh no, the world's going to end tomorrow and the churches, their school's going to call me and kick us out. And I just, it's stupid. Do you get angry at the right things? There's no reason to get angry. You just go, eh, it happens. We'll deal with it. 
And do you express it in the right way? See, I bet, I don't think, I, I think, <laughs> it's not up there, but I think 1 Corinthians is helpful here. Where it says, somewhere, no temptation has overtaken you, but such as as, thank you. Read it to my compass grad over there. But such as as common to man, common to humans. I'm not the only one in here that struggles with this. Like I said before, my anger shows. Some of your anger just doesn't show. You're cool cats. I get you. But you're just as angry on the inside. And this is, this is an issue that we all need to deal with. Do you get angry at the right time? Honestly, there are some things to get angry about. I'll tell you again, a couple weeks ago, I raised my voice and I did it to someone in the presence of others. And I felt no, not one, not an ounce of remorse because I got angry at the right thing and I handled it in the right way because someone needed to hear right then and there, we're not playing games. So there's a time and place for that. I think it's rare. I think in all my, even in my seven years of being here as a pastor, that was probably the one time that it was appropriate. So do you get angry at the right, because there's good things to get angry about. Like, honestly, if you're not frustrated, irked, burr under your saddle, indignant, angry, upset about abortion? I mean, if you're not, why not? It is despicable. It is despicable. And to sit at a radio show and just to describe when a little fetus sees a needle coming to it and it recoils in the face of unbelievers and they can't even see, they're just, they're just taken back by the truth. And if it doesn't make you angry, why not? Have you bought into the world thinking really not a baby till it hits the chest of the mother? That's just wrong. It's just wrong. And it should frustrate you. It should frustrate you. It should make you angry when you see in the name of God, though a false God, people going out and killing people brutally. It should frustrate you to make you angry. It should frustrate you and make you angry. But then, in the name of all pluralism, to make everybody happy, that's the same God that you worship. No, that makes me angry that you say that, because that is not my God. So I... Honestly, I believe we've gotten to a point we don't get angry enough about the right thing. And we get angry about whether, you know, the Broncos may lose. Man, I'm just angry. Did you know, I was told this by a man I love and trust, that, let me get this right, domestic violence increases on Sundays when the Broncos lose. Un, I can't, I can't do that anymore. Believable. Believable. Wow. 
We get angry at the wrong things, and then we handle it in the wrong way. Because there are times, honestly, and I'll, I'll just confessing my sin before you, I've gotten angry at the right things. This is right. I know I'm right. I've looked at the scriptures. I have the facts. This is right. And then I just didn't handle it the wrong way. So it's a two-edged sword. Do you get angry at the right things, and do you handle it in the right way? Get angry at the right hand things. Handle it in the right way. How is that? You've got to be slow, and it needs to be short-lived. So as we go on mission, nobody's going to disagree. Homicide, genocide, euthanasia, suicide, they're wrong. People are going to discuss until the cows come home or that whatever that saying is. Gun control and capital punishment, you're always going to be, you know, there'll be people fall on both sides. You know, one day a pacifist is going to say, I'm really glad you protected me with your gun. Um, it just is. I mean, and I don't want to, but, but when it comes to this issue on Sanctity of Life Sunday, we should be, we should be joyfully angry. Joyfully angry. What do you mean joyfully angry? I mean, you should be angry at the fact that there are people and there are presidents and there are people in government who don't even watch the videos that are sent out. Oh, those were sent out Ill illegally. They were, they were, we go down that road. Let's not deal with the issue. Let's make all sorts of 17 other issues. So Nancy Pelosi, I'll just say it, she hasn't ever watched a video, and she starts condemning the videos that, the, that were captured by this person that goes undercover to show that people are harvesting babies. She doesn't even do it. And I'm like, you just, you're, you just lost all credibility with me. Don't ever run for office again because you've lost all credibility. You don't, even, you don't even deal with the truth. You just bought into something, and you won't. Honestly, I face it. So it's crazy. And then you get up there and you can get in the Oval Office and you can just wax eloquent about rights and choices and all that. I believe in choice. I think every woman should have a choice. But you don't get to choose when life begins. God did, and it's in the womb. It is a baby. It is a human. And here's what I'll say. I'll go on record, and I'll do it on my own if the elders want to do it. If there's anybody out there that's thinking about an abortion, Tell your friends, don't do it. Have the baby. Bring it to Eagle Bible Church. We'll do something about it. Because I'm tired of the issues. I'm so tired of the issues. It, it, it's, it's gross. And I agree with Russell Moore, and I'll read this and be done. Russell Moore, le leading evangelical. He's a Baptist, by the way, Bradley. So we'll end with a Baptist. Why I Hate Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. And when I saw that title, I thought, yes, he's really good. Because I know he's just drawn me into this article. Don't get me wrong. The call to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ is a joy. We should be joyful. Yesterday, I pronounced a godly young couple, husband and wife. This morning, I baptized a brother in Christ. Nothing is more thrilling than opening the word of God to the people of Christ week by week. Amen. Honestly, you make it a joy to do, and I'm glad I'm, get up. I'm glad you've given me the privilege for seven years to do this. It's not in the article. That's just me interacting with it with you. But it provoked my spirit this morning to preach the Sanctity of Human Life Sunday emphasis this morning. I don't hate Sanctity of Human Life Sunday because I think it somehow is unbiblical. No, indeed. The entire canon throbs with God's commitment to the fatherless and to widows, His wrath at the shedding of innocent blood, I don't hate it because I think it's inappropriate. Just as every Lord's Day should be Easter. Amen? Jesus rose from the dead with the proclamation of the resurrection of Jesus and Christmas. Jesus came. 
He didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. He came. So every Sunday is Easter. Actually, every Sunday, if we're going, I'm a logical thinker. Every Sunday is Christmas. Every Sunday is Easter. So every Lord's Day should highlight the worth and dignity of human life. I hate Sanctity of Life Sunday because I'm reminded that we have to say the things to one another that human beings shouldn't have to say. Mothers shouldn't kill their children. I'll change one word. Mothers shouldn't murder their children. Fathers shouldn't abandon their babies. No human life is worthless, regardless of skin color, age, disability, economic status. The very fact that these things must be proclaimed is a reminder of the horrors of this present darkness. This morning, as I opened my Bible to preach, I looked and out of and caught the eye of my son. I prayed that their children wouldn't have to hear a sermon against abortion, abortion and euthanasia. I prayed that my grandchildren and great-grandchildren would grow up in an age when abortion is, as the Feminists for Life organization put it some years ago, not just illegal, but unthinkable. I prayed for my yet-to-be-conceived, but not yet-to-be-conceived, of great-grandchildren that a sanctity of human life Sunday would seem unnecessary to them as the reality and gravity emphasis Sunday. I like that. The reality and gravity emphasis Sunday. I hate sanctity of human life Sunday because I'm reminded that as I'm preaching there are babies warmly nestled in wombs that won't be there tomorrow. Numbers of abortion.com, just go there. They're ticks, they're ticks, they're ticks. I'm reminded that there are children, maybe even blocks from my pulpit, who've been slapped, punched, and burned with cigarettes by nightfall. If that ever happens, tell me. I'll go get them. I'm dead serious. It crushes me that a human, that a person in power would do that. If you ever hear that, you tell me. I don't care. I don't, I'll take my Nerf gun and I'll march over there and I'll take that kid. You're staying with me. I'm reminded that there are elderly men and women languishing away in loneliness. And there would be people who would pronounce their life a waste and let's make it easier and take your life. Ridiculous. Why don't we go talk to them? And learn from them. But he ends with this. But I also love Sanctity of Life Human Sunday. And I think about the fact that I serve a congregation with ex-orphans all around. Adopted. Adopted into loving families. I love to reflect on the men and women who serve every week in pregnancy centers for women in crisis. I love to see men and women who have aborted babies Find their sins forgiven. If you've done that, if it's ever happened, Jesus Christ will forgive your sins. Even this sin. And their consciences cleansed by Christ. It's happened in the past. If you know somebody who's done it, I'd love to talk to them and show them. Hebrews 9.14 What the blood of, blood of goats could not do, Jesus Christ will cleanse your conscience. I was an alcoholic, adulterer, addicted to self 
businessman. And God says, you know what? You don't need that, God. You don't need that, God. You certainly don't need that, God. Let me be your God. We all, we will always need Christmas. We will always need it. But I hope, please, Lord, someday soon, that sanctity of human life, Jay, is unnecessary. Father, you're a good, good father, says the song, because you care for your children. Father, my prayers for anybody and everybody here that we see clearly the true nuances of what it means to know murder. I pray for any woman in this valley who's got a baby in their belly right now and they're contemplating why they should have it, that you would convict their souls to give birth and give it up for adoption if they don't want it. Then they hurt it. It's not important. And Father, I pray for the deeper issue not only in my own heart, but in every heart in this room, to some degree or another, that we would see ourselves as helpless, we would see ourselves as those who have gotten angry, and we would throw ourselves upon your mercy. Because your wrath, your righteous anger, was averted at the cross. And so we thank you for Jesus. And that you no longer look on us with anger. But you look on us with joy. Do you get disappointed in us when we sin? I know you do. But your wrath has been turned away. The blood of your Son has covered our sins. We are free from debt. We are free from guilt. And I pray the flip side of that, that we would be the most joyful people on the planet who rightly know how to talk about death, life, and the owner of it all. It's in your name, in your son's name I pray. Amen.